Good morning. My son left a quote up here for me that says, I like that boulder. That's a nice boulder. That is foreshadowing of this sermon. Um, uh, two things before we jump in. One, just wanted to acknowledge that this past week we fasted together. Steve mentioned this at the beginning of the liturgy this morning. And um, just wanted to thank those of you who dove in courageously. Uh, for many, I'm sure it was your first time fasting, and uh, that can be quite an experience. But for those of you who are here on Wednesday, especially, um, yeah, it just felt like God did stuff in this room um, on Wednesday night and just kind of wanted to acknowledge that and, um, and encourage us to stay in a place where, uh, one, we are willing to, um, to just be obedient to how God leads us, because sometimes we're surprised by the impact that things that we think are crazy, like going without food, um, will, will have on us. And then also, uh, one of the things that I said on Wednesday that a couple people commented on was just how rarely we get to pray for each other, um, and just to encourage you to do that more, to take the risk uh, ask after a gathering or something like that to say, hey, can, can I just take the time to pray for you? Uh, the one other thing that I wanted to do before we jump into the teaching was we just got done uh, not only with our spring semester of discipleship course, but for us, what is uh, sort of the, the, the majority of our year, we, we do some discipleship things in the summer, but the fall and spring are kind of our big times. And uh, I just don't get an opportunity to do this, just to thank the team that puts that on, um, our discipleship team that are familiar to you. Um, but just wanted to say thank you to that team that's, uh, yeah, you can clap for them, yeah. Um, you guys would just stand up quick. Uh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Stand up, stand up. Um, yeah. So Jalen, Tyler, Sarah, Rach, Kimberly, uh, Liz Ann, and then Morgan, who runs all the logistical stuff on the back end for us. Just thank you guys. Thanks for what you pour into this community. Um, just felt like it was right to do that this week. Um, with that, we are going to jump into the teaching. For those of you who get nervous about this kind of stuff, um, yes, we will go back to where we were in the Gospel of John. I just wanted to cover, wow, maybe that's a lot of you, if that's nervous laughter. Um, I just wanted to cover sort of John's telling of Palm Sunday, which we wouldn't get to for a few months uh, if we didn't do it this way. And so preview, so you can ready yourself, we're going to be talking about the resurrection on Easter from the Gospel of John, so don't get nervous. Um... So yes, we will go back. But I felt like we are immersed enough in the Gospel of John. Just, just had uh, Ryan Fisher tell me this morning, like, man, it's been good to be in the Gospel of John, noticing things that I didn't notice. Sometimes you need to be in someone's thought world for a while uh, to kind of pick up on what they're doing. And I felt like it'd be cool to go to Palm Sunday and say, what have we been learning about John and how can we pick up on maybe uh, the way that he tells this story that actually all the, all the different Gospels, all the different little biographies of Jesus tell. And I think that there's some really cool things going on here. If I had to tag this text and, and this message, I'd call it something like, Jesus doesn't give us what we want, but what he gives us is always better. Jesus doesn't give us what we want, but what he gives us is always better. The other concept that we're going to see track throughout this, uh, throughout this text is, uh, actually speaking of Kimberly, something that Kimberly Porsche, she's an English teacher, um, that she clarified for me, is the idea of dramatic irony. Dramatic irony is the concept where um, you're reading a story and you as the reader have information that the people in the story don't have. 
and it builds tension in the story because you know something that they don't know, and yet you're watching them in their lack of knowledge, and you're feeling that tension, right? It's the... Um, it's like watching uh, some cheesy horror flick or whatever, and you know, uh, this is very graphic. Um, how do I not, right? Like, um, the scary person is in that room, and people are going to, into the scary room. And you're like, no, don't go in there, right? That's dramatic irony. Um, and so you have information that the readers don't know. This scene is full of dramatic irony. And in fact, it's the dramatic irony that explains a lot of why John tells the story the way that he tells it. So ready? Let's jump in. Verse 9, we're in John chapter 12, verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. So this is after the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus is Jesus' really good friend, who he very famously um, goes and, and calls out of the grave. Lazarus has physically died. Jesus calls him out and resurrects him. The, the, I mean, hard to argue that it wasn't the most significant miracle that Jesus did for another person. So people want to see this. They want to see Jesus, and they want to see this man who is dead and wasn't dead anymore. So the chief priests made plans. Here you go. The serious people, as we've been calling them, made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So now not only is Jesus in the religious authority sites, but Lazarus himself, now they're like, yeah, we got to get this guy out of here because his, what he's bearing witness to is drawing people away from their authority and toward what Jesus's message is. Uh, just briefly here, read one thing that said, um, this reminds us that even those who have radically miraculous things happen to them are not relieved of all of their suffering. Right, like here's Lazarus who has experienced the greatest miracle any human being really has ever experienced. And very soon afterwards, the powers that be have him in their sights to, to kill him, right? Um, and so just because Jesus does one miracle doesn't mean everything else is somehow magically resolved. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, so this is Passover, this is where all of... Uh, all of the Jewish people that were able would come into the city of Jerusalem. So, so picture the city's packed. I mean, we're talking about, um, this, is like, this is like New Brunswick going from sort of like a normal New Brunswick day, which is busy as it is, to like having everyone who's on Manhattan on a Saturday flooding into it, right? Just, just picture the congestion in this place. And now there's a buzz that's gone throughout the city that someone uh, who seems to maybe be this, uh, at least a prophet, who others are saying possibly a Messiah, who others are going out and seeing has done this miracle of raising this person from death is coming into the city. And so what they do is they go out to welcome him. This is, this is how it was done back in that day is when a dignitary was coming into your city, you would be the one who would go out to greet that general, that, um, that king, that emperor, that whatever they were, celebrity at that time, political figure of that time, and you would line the streets for them so that they had, it was like, in our day, the phrase that we would use, it's like rolling out the red carpet, right, in, in the most significant way so that they could enter your city with the proper attention. So that's what they do for Jesus. The next day, the large crowds that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. These are words from Psalm 118 that had become associated with the hope of Israel's being politically freed from the oppressive empire of Rome. This is what they would shout. This is a bit like a national anthem longing for freedom from their oppressors. Hosanna. They're crying out. This is where some of the dramatic irony begins. Is their crying out, Hosanna, quite literally means, Oh God, save us. Save us. Now what they're saying is, Oh God, save us from our current political economic situation. What we have here, though, on their lips as those who know things that they don't know is that Jesus' salvation isn't less than what they're demanding. It's infinitely deeper than they're demanding. He has come to save us from our actual deepest enemy, namely sin and death. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And, verse 14, I want you to circle and there in your Bible. That is this wonderful, uh, in the original language, this wonderful little two-letter word, D-E-D-E. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Perfectly fine to call it and, but in 90% of circumstances, that little two-letter word means but. It's called an adversative. It's communicating, in spite of what just happened, this is happening. Okay? So... Jesus gets this welcome. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. But in spite of our expectations, what Jesus does is he finds a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Okay, a couple things you need to know. One, this is not the first time this kind of thing has happened in Jerusalem. In fact, in the centuries just prior to that, I won't go through all the history, but there was uh, this um, rebellion where... uh, let me make sure I'm getting my people right. Um, oh, who is this? Simon Maccabees um, was this, yeah, Simon the Maccabee, uh, who drove out Syrian forces. That's what I was looking for. So Syria, uh, this is like three centuries before this, had been the oppressor at that time, had its officials ruling over Jerusalem, and this, this figure, Simon, who is sort of a priest, sort of a warrior, led this military charge to free Jerusalem, to make it its own thing that its own people, that the Jewish people could rule over, had sent them out. And what they did after that victory was when Simon would come into the city, guess what they would do? They would wave palm branches and say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So much so that palm branches became associated with the people's freedom. It was a sign of hope that one day the oppressors would be sent out, that, the, that these empires that had dominated over Jerusalem would be cast out once and for all. So much so that the palm branches were on the money that the, the Jewish people would use with one another. In other words, we are surrounded by symbols of political geopolitical significance. That's what the people are doing. They're putting their hope in politics, which we don't do anymore, but you've got to put yourself somehow in the first century and say, can you imagine us putting our hope on a single individual, just one person, 
and that their getting into a certain office would make all of our dreams come true. Just imagine it, right? That's what they're doing here. Here's, here's also what you do when you come into a city and people are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the, Lord, comes in the name of the Lord. Here's, um, here's one image. This is a sculpture. This is Marcus Aurelius, who just sounds like an emperor because he was. This is how he would enter. This is a sculpture depicting how he would enter cities on a white war horse um, above everyone. You can almost feel with his hand part of the point of being on a huge white steed was that not only did it represent the power that you had, but it would elevate you over the people such that they were under you, such that you see his hand is kind of like, kind of like I am right now, like, oh, sweet Pastor Obed, right? Meli, I bless you, right? Like there's this sort of elevation of the person. Jesus is getting the same welcome as the Marcus Aureliuses of the world, but Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Jesus got this. Right? <laughs> I put this together. I was like, Either it's going to be crickets or people will laugh or, right? He gets a donkey, right? And in case you think that this is absurd, this is literally the first thing that came up on Google Images for young donkey. Go to the next one, Brian. This, yo. Exactly. How do you ride that? Right? I suppose sort of like side saddle or something. Or you kind of ride it like this, right? Like with your feet on the ground. It's in a... This is the first all right, all right, fair enough. It's like the fourth image, right? The absurdity, the absurdity of this. Do you hear, do you hear the, uh, we're learning a little grammar. Do you hear the adversative at work? They're giving this cry. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're expecting him. Literally earlier in the Gospel of John, it says, Jesus left a place because he knew they were going to try and seize him to make him king. Seize him to make him king. They're demanding of him. No, this is what you're going to do for us. This is what you're here to do. We're sure of it. If you can do all of that, then this is our agenda for you. And it says, but Jesus instead goes and finds not just a donkey, a young donkey. It's an absurd image. It's an absurd image that actually comes from the Old Testament, as we're called, as we're, as we're told. Check it out. Finds a young donkey, sat in it just as it's written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. What's not happening here, Jacob's well, what's not happening is that Jesus, that's from Zechariah chapter 9, one of the Old Testament prophets talking about what God will do when he comes. What Jesus is not doing here is like, oh, what did, um, somebody get me a Bible real quick. Uh, what did Zechariah 9 say? Oh, it says the young colt. Somebody get me a colt. The image in the prophecy is meant to be absurd. The image itself is meant to be surprising. This isn't like, oh, Jesus just did it because this was predicted. No, even the prediction itself, you would have thought was just hyperbole. You would have thought it was just an overstatement of the contrast between the one that God would send 
and what the world sends. And Jesus says, yeah, that's, that's, that's about right. Go get the donkey. His disciples did not understand these things at first. I love that, right? His disciples did not understand it. You've got to picture it, man. Like, here's Marcus Aurelius over everybody, right? And now here comes Jesus. And you can almost picture, right? Like, him on this donkey, it might even be like sort of him below everybody, right? And his disciples did not understand these things at first. I love that. His disciples are like, what are we doing? Like, what are we actually doing? Why is he riding the young donkey? When Jesus was glorified, which we find out later is maybe counter to our expectations, when he's crucified, they remembered that these things had been written about him, and then I love this, and had been done to him. I think a lot of times we think that the only way that Jesus fulfills scripture is he himself is sort of the active agent behind it. It's like, no, he had things done to him that were predictable according to the scriptures. In other words, I think that what this is saying is Jesus did not choose this entry into Jerusalem. He didn't choose, this wasn't the way that he expected. People did this to him and in so many ways it fulfilled expectations because this is what the Old Testament knows our hearts do. It knows that we actually long for something not greater than what God wants to provide, but something more surface and superficial and yet often more immediate. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. And remember, crowds that follow Jesus, because of something spectacular he does, especially John's gospel, is at least neutral toward, if not a little suspicious of. Because if you only follow Jesus for the laser light show, for the next great thing he's going to be, to do, to be for you, whatever, John especially says, be really careful. Be really careful. Because at some point, the magic show ends, things get difficult, and then real discipleship starts. Amen, right? Like, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is dramatic irony. We know something that those in the story don't know. Pharisees, of course, are gaining nothing. There's nothing they can do to stop what Jesus is actually. Of course, they're frustrated with his popularity. And so they're like, oh, he's going to be more popular than us. That's the irony. Jesus has no interest in the popularity. In fact, he's trying to, to push it away. And yet they can't stop what he is going to do. Look, the world has gone after him. I love that, uh, that the Pharisees, that, that these people with power, right? That's how you have to think of, of the Pharisees, the chief priests and things, is you got to think of them as, as showing us what people with power, when that power is challenged, do. Do you notice what they say? They say, you see, we're gaining nothing. No, that's not what they say. What do they say? You see that you 
are gaining nothing. <laughs> this is great. The it almost looks like a typo. It almost looks like a typo. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. What do people with power do in their power challenge? They start pointing fingers. You, <laughs> we, try, we try what you said, and it's not working. You're, you're the problem. And then the other people with power are going, you're the problem. Again, we don't do this anymore, but you got to put yourself in a first century, right? The finger pointing starts. We try what you, but you, no, this is your fault. This is on you. And it just groups them together. And this says, this is what they're off doing. This is what power does. It looks to blame. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, were some non-Jewish people. So these came to, which would happen, um, we're told this like in Acts. We see that non-Jewish people would go to these feasts. Um, and, and not just as spectators, but out of curiosity or out of genuine religious devotion. Right? It's, it's, like, it's like church, right? Like we will probably be fuller next Sunday because of Easter because there's people who will come who aren't normally involved in what we do, but they'll come, which is great, right? Like this is not a negative thing. It's just the reality of during Passover, there would be people who normally wouldn't come to these feasts who would show up for this particular one. So among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. So now even word has gotten to people who aren't sort of in the inner core of what's going on. What's cool here is they seem to go up to Philip because Philip is one of the only disciples with a non-Jewish uh, name, with, with a more Greek name. Even though he himself was Jewish, we know that he was Jewish. They kind of find the person where they're like, well, maybe he's one of us, right? Like, um, which is just an interesting thing. Um, so Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. I love details like this. This is where you, you get the clear sense that we have an insider who really saw these things go down. You can almost sense in the, in the chaos of all of this, now there's non-Jewish people who want to talk to Jesus, and Philip is like, I don't really want to ask him if he wants to talk. Like, he's busy. Um, we haven't really been going to non-Jewish people. I don't know. So he goes up to Andrew, and he's like, what do you think? And then Andrew's like, okay, I'll go with you, right? Like, this is just like classic. This also, to me, um, as I thought about this this week, this shows you that by now, there is this deep recognition by the disciples that they're dealing with someone wholly other. Um, there is sort of this, I think, uh, righteous little bit of fear that they have of like, okay, things are getting more intense We've now seen enough to know we're not just dealing with our buddy. He's not one of us. He's not first among equals. There's something distinct here, right? There's a reverence in this interaction that I find really profound. And Jesus answered, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And this is where the dr dramatic irony reaches its fever pitch. Jesus has just entered the city at the height of his popularity. The crowds are chanting his name. Even non-Jewish people are now wanting an audience with him. Right? This is like, oh my goodness, Jesus. It's not just the local news. Like, CNN wants to interview you, right? Like, like he's going global. Um, and Jesus says, now the hour has come for me to be glorified, which sounds like, 
exactly what we would expect him to say. Here it is. All the glory is coming. Now is the time for me to be glorified. It's finally how all of my hard work, all of the, the PR, all of the advanced press, all of the social media, you know, blitzes, they worked. And now is the time for me to be glorified. And stunningly, throughout John's gospel, the idea of Jesus being glorified, as we'll see in one second, if you don't believe my words, believe the scriptures, is associated time and time again with what appears to be the least glorious thing that not only ever happens to Jesus, but that you could argue ever happens in human history. That that becomes Jesus, that the crucifixion is Jesus being glorified. This, in John's gospel, is Jesus' way of saying, now is the time of my crucifixion. Counter to all of our expectations, counter to what his words here seem to indicate. Because Jesus... We'll end with what Jesus actually provides. But I think that there's also a really necessary clarification that while the crowds and Jesus agree on what needs to happen, which is salvation and God ruling over all the earth, while they agree on that, that's, that's the ultimate goal. Salvation for people and God ruling over the earth. Where they and Jesus, let's get to the point here, where we and Jesus radically disagree are on the means of those ends. Or on how that is going to be accomplished. Esau Macaulay, who is an Anglican priest, he's actually now a New York Times uh, columnist, which is pretty cool, he put something out in Christianity Today this week. Um, I read this yesterday and was like, ugh. Sometimes you feel like, well, there's my sermon. Um, let me read this. Follow this, okay? I don't have it on the slide. It's too soon. Jesus' claim to be the Messiah was not simply about a goal. God's rule over all things. He and the crowd agreed on that point. His earthly life and ministry were also about the means of accomplishing that goal. Namely, sacrificial love. Jesus gave us not only the gift of forgiveness flowing through his passion and resurrection, but also a way to follow. That way needs to inform both our private and public witness as Christians. If we strive to establish God's rule through self-assertion over neighborly care, pragmatism over principle, and malice over love, then whatever else we accomplish, we are no longer following in the way of Jesus. God chose meekness, integrity, and love to gather his people. That is the message of Palm Sunday. For all the shouts of acclamation, Jesus never lost sight of the cross. Macaulay goes on to say, we ourselves, if you follow what he means, we ourselves are so prone to pick up our palm branches and to ignore the reality of the donkey. In fact, in some ways, that, that whole article is him arguing, not seriously, but him in a way arguing for Palm Sunday is the wrong title of what we remember. If anything, it should be Donkey Sunday. 
right? Because we ourselves still try and use the tools of empire. Maybe more to the point, the tools of the enemy. Shouting others down, pointing fingers, taking up power in order and think that those things will accomplish God's rule, will accomplish salvation. Look, this is where, um, if I could zoom out a little bit, this is where American Christianity has in so many ways lost its way. We are palm branch people, not donkey riders. You know what I'm saying? And so when we're tempted to take up palm branches in Jesus' name, may God bring to mind that adversity. Y'all pick up palm branches, but Jesus goes and finds a young donkey, lowers himself, does whatever he can to communicate, I care just as much, if not more, about means than ends. Right? Christians, you got to stop with this nonsense of the way that God's kingdom comes is when Christians are able to take up, keep, preserve power at all costs. That's a hard message for us Americans. That's a hard message. That's what Palm Sunday, that's what Donkey Sunday actually communicates. And the same is true in our personal lives, right? We don't have to throw stones. Very few of us have enough political power for that to really make an impact on American Christianity. But on our own Christianity, right? Setting the terms, the agenda, and saying, Jesus, if you've done that, then you've got to do this for me. And Jesus says, it might not go that way. Jesus, I want this, but I'm only willing to give this up. And Jesus says, you might have to give up more. Right? Because it's not just ends, it's means when it comes to Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, we should be used to now Jesus using that. Truly, truly, this is true. I don't need it to be, you know, double verified. I verify myself. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me where I am. There will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What a speech. With the, with the, with, you can almost feel it. With the noise of the crowd still pulsing around him, Jesus says, unless you die, unless you die, nothing, no real fruit will be born in your life. This is an image that would have resonated, especially with, with people who are familiar with farming, with, with an agrarian society, but it's such a powerful image, right? We throw seed. I don't know how many of, of you are gardeners, but it is the wildest thing in the world that we throw seed into the ground and it disappears for an indeterminate amount of time. It's just gone. As far as you're concerned, it's dead. It's buried, right? And Jesus says that is the necessary precondition of what bursts through the soil at some point in fruitfulness and beauty. And what he's saying is, the only way for my ministry to truly bear the fruit that it was meant to bear and to blossom into the full beauty of who I am is if I too appear to be overcome, vanquished, right? Marcus Aurelius goes into cities looking to conquer them. Jesus goes into Jerusalem expecting to be conquered. Jesus, is this the only way? 
It's the only way for me, and it's the only way for my people, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies. It remains alone. But if it dies, it can grow. Their fruit blossom into the full beauty of what it is. And he says, this is a concept not just for my ministry. This is a concept of life. This is how the human machine is made. In fact, you, my follower, you're going to have to follow me, not just to the joy of miracles in the laser light show of what I can provide. You're going to have to follow me and be where I am. Do you hear how he says that? Now, we think of that. We think, I have to follow Jesus, and then I'll be where he is. And where do we think he is? Heaven, right? Bring me home. Follow Jesus. Get my golden ticket. Let's do this. Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. He's saying, no crown without cross. No resurrection without crucifixion. And I'm sorry, that's not just for me. That's for you too. There's things that are going to have to die in your life in order for the life that I uniquely give to flow into you. I love how one of the commentators, really wonderful commentator and pastor, Frederick Bruner, how he describes what Jesus is saying here. These are his sort of paraphrase of that. Next one. If one hates the way, this, this is how he defines what Jesus is saying when, when he says, you got to hate your life in this world in order to preserve it to eternal life. If one hates the way life is lived in this world, in its consummately selfish way, and in our own culpable environment, involvement in that way, then one will, by living counterculturally, preserve one's life into a deep, lasting, and eternal life. We've got to learn to hate life as the world wants us to do it. And he's not unwilling to use that dramatic a turn. St. Augustine, a great North African theologian, said, the Christian uniquely must hate their life for a while in order to enjoy it forever. Now, what we're not talking about here is, don't hear me wrong, we're not talking about self-hatred, we're, we're not talking about, in fact, Jesus is, is the exact opposite. He speaks life over us, wants us to, to understand that we are made in the image of God. This isn't self-hatred, this is hatred of the consummately selfish way the world would call us to live in our own culpable involvement in it. Whoever loses his life, or whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. When it says, um, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am there will my servant be off. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We, if you serve Jesus and follow him, you've got to go where he is, which is often not away from suffering, but toward suffering. That's the first thing it's saying here. But what's on the other side of that is an honoring. Not an honoring that comes from people, but an honoring from God. Now, this sounds funky to some of our ears because we think of all of life, right? Some of you are good reform folks. Some of you take really seriously what we say about our mission, that all of life is about glorifying God. And that's true in a sense. There's also the reality that there is glory that comes from God to us when we live that way. That's crazy, y'all. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, will one day welcome you in the way that Jesus was wrongly welcomed here in Jerusalem. God will honor you. Do you have space for that? Do you even, do you even have like a category for the fact that one day, you know what this is? 
It's the honoring of a parent to a child. It's the honoring of a grandparent to a child, right? It's not a, it's not a placing yourself below. It's an acknowledging what that one has done from a deep place of love, appreciation, and connectedness, right? Like, my image that comes to my mind is my grandmother, who just always thought everything I did was the very best. And I knew it wasn't. And I knew that that was so grounded in just who I was to her that she couldn't but honor me, even though the honor utterly, totally belonged in the opposite direction. And even though influence utterly and totally ran in the other direction, there was an honor that I received from her. If you don't have a category for the fact that you are one worthy of honor by the creator of the universe, you probably haven't met Jesus quite in the depths of grace and mercy that he provides. That's how much you're loved almost borders on heretical. Jesus said it. That's not me. Those are Jesus's words. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Verse 27. Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. You got to keep in mind the disciples are still like, I don't really know what he's talking about, right? Like he hasn't said like, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be crucified. They're just like, I don't know where this is going. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered, right? Like last night, picture in the midst of that storm, me and my little guy, we got caught out, and we saw that lightning and the thunder. We were at a pizza shop, which is actually kind of a nice place to be. But that's what people, people are standing there, and that's the phenomena that happened, right? And this is what happens a lot. When God speaks, some people hear it and can, and can discern it. Some people are just like, what in the world was that? Again, Jesus says things like, my sheep know my voice. When God speaks, do we hear it or do we say, that was weird? I'm not talking audibly necessarily, but there's a dynamic here that John is often getting at. Some said an angel has spoken to him. Those are the spiritual people among them. Jesus uh, answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Okay, now check this out. I'm, I'm sort of hustling to the end for the sake of time. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Okay, three things that Jesus, Jesus doesn't give us what we want, which is political power, freedom from our circumstances, um, laser light shows to, to impress others and show them that they were wrong all along and that we were right. But he gives us, what he gives us is far better. This is the far better. Three things that he, he said to give us here. One, now is the judgment of this world. This works in two ways. Jesus is talking about his crucifixion, remember. He says, my crucifixion is the judgment of this world. There's two sides to this coin. One is he's saying, the world will never look worse than as it hangs its savior on a cross. The world will never be so judged for just how far it has fallen from the purposes of God that when God walks on the scene, we nail him to a cross because of the threat that his love and his power is to us. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin, which you can only see with eyes of faith, is that on that cross, that sin is also judged once and for all. And so those who unite themselves to Jesus by faith, 
This is more the Apostle Paul or a Christian missionary teacher. This is, what, this is sort of his reasoning out from all the things that Jesus said. Those who unite themselves to Jesus are themselves judged. Their sin is judged with Jesus in that moment. In other words, whatever your culpability, to use that word again, is in the world getting to the point where it would crucify its God, is judged not one day when you stand before God and receive the punishment that is justly due you. It's received 2,000 years ago on the cross. Jesus says that's what you need most. That's what you need more than anything else. You need, because if you're relying on moral performance, if you're relying on some sort of uh, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, anything like that, look, you know your own heart, you know your own thoughts as you sit here this morning. You know that that's not going to work out. And if you don't, it's time to take a serious look at your actual heart, your actual thoughts, your actual deeds. Jesus says what you need is not for your good deeds to outpace your bad deeds. It's for every horrible thing that you have done that deserves just judgment to be judged somehow not directly on, uh, according to your own account. It needs to be accounted elsewhere. He says, that's what happens on the cross. <laughs> that's crazy. That's Christianity. That's Christianity. What did Jesus do on the cross? He bore your sin. What did Jesus do on the cross? He saved you from your sin. That's how. Because it was judged in that moment. Because God literally poured it on him and accounted your sin to him as if Jesus himself had done it and then judged it, killed Jesus, forsook Jesus the way that you know you deserve to be forsaken by God. Have you ever struggled so much with sin, gone back to a sin you promised you didn't do, and you're like, God's gotta be done with me. That's the only just thing here. He's gotta be utterly done with me. He was done with your sin. It just wasn't in relationship to you, it was in relationship to his son. And you say, wait, 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 God himself put himself in my place and got what I deserve? That's Christianity. That's why it's the gospel. That's why it's good news. That's what that fancy Christian word means. That's really good news. Jesus says, that's what I'm here to do. And that's far better than political freedom. Because political freedom, I mean, come on, right? Like, that might last for four years, and taxes might go up or down, or your policies might happen or not happen. It's fleeting at best. This is eternal, eternal security, eternal salvation. Second thing he says, now is the judgment of this world, number one. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Who's he talking about? Go ahead, say it. Satan, he's talking about Satan. That there is a reality that because Jesus judges sin in that way, Satan is displaced from a certain measure of authority. He is dethroned is what Jesus is saying. I love that in John's gospel, there aren't any casting out of demons. There's this one big casting out. There's no smaller exorcism. There's just the big exorcism where Jesus says, when I die on the cross, Satan's rule is over. He is cast out once and for all. In other words, he no longer has authority over your life if you're united to Jesus because Jesus has vanquished the one thing that Satan can throw at you, which is sin, death, and condemnation, right? That constellation of things, they're defeated. Satan's dethroned. You enter into Jesus' kingdom, that stuff no longer has rule over you. It might feel like it because you still struggle and you still go on, but the, but the reality that you live in is that stuff is under you. 
This is also that, that same commentator. He says, the devil is no longer over, catch this. this. This might be your takeaway this morning. The devil is no longer over Jesus' disciples. Rather, Satan is under them, still tempting them from below, yes, but no longer dominating them from above, thanks to Jesus' great trouncing. Satan tempts you, but he does it from below, okay? He is calling you downward. I think one of the, the lies that we can believe is that Satan's temptations are to something greater. Ooh, you want life? You want real joy? Come up higher. Say no to all that putting yourself down stuff. Say no to all, all of that bending the knee stuff. Come up higher. And we say, no, I got to stay down here. He wants me miserable. Sorry, that's the deal. Oh, it looks fun up there. Jesus says, he's down there. He's calling you downward. He's saying, come down here and wrestle in the mud with me. And we say, no, thank you. Right? No, thank you. All that, all that I need to prove this is the last time you gave in to temptation. Did the other side of it feel like a calling up? Did you say, my goodness, it's beautiful up here. My goodness, I should live my whole life like this. Or did it feel like, oh, he's calling you down. He's not calling you up. And he's under your feet. So when he tempts you, you say, no thank you to the mud. No thank you to my face in the dirt. No thank you to the joylessness that's down there with you. I'm good where I am. You've been cast out. Shut up. I'm listening to Jesus up here. Stop shouting from below my feet. Right? Third thing he gives us. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When is Jesus lifted up from the earth? At his ascension, right? He's lifted up at his ascension. I will draw all people to myself. And he says, when I, when I levitate, I'm going to... I'm going to draw people to myself. That's the image that we get, right? What does John say? Here's a parenthetical. Ryan Fisher, this is for you. Here's a parenthetical. Verse 33, underline this. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He was lifted up on the cross. He was lifted up from the earth. Dramatic irony. We know something they don't know. They're like, Jesus is going to be drawn up from the earth going to be sick, right? Like, of course he would draw people to himself. How do you not? A dude is flying, right? Like, this is what the superhero movies do. Whoa, it's Iron Man, right? No, no, when is he lifted? He is lifted up from the earth by his hands and by his feet with nails in them. He says, when that happens, that is when the earth will be drawn, all peoples will be drawn to me. Remember what initiated this whole bizarre speech. It's Greeks coming to him. You see, what Jesus provides is not a salvation for one people group, not a salvation for those who are in, not a salvation for those who align with a certain political agenda. He, he says, I will draw all people to myself. This is a universal offer of salvation. And he says, it's only possible if I'm raised from the earth. You see, what Jesus is saying is, much like that grain of wheat that goes into the ground and then pops up, there is a fruitfulness that will only come through his death, namely the casting out of Satan and the salvation and judgment that, that is upon our sin and that becomes our salvation. He says, but there's also a beauty. There's also a beauty that will draw all people to myself. If Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection is not something that makes your heart pump 
a little faster because you say, that's the creator of the world suffering on my behalf. I heard someone say this week, no one is driven to Jesus. You're drawn to Jesus. No one is pushed to believe. You are compelled by the beauty of Jesus to believe. And Christian, this is not just a one-time thing. For those of us who are following Jesus, let's spend this week expecting to be redrawn to the beauty of what Jesus has, has done. To be compelled by it again, to look at it and say that is the most horrid thing that has ever happened and yet somehow the most beautiful thing that has ever happened because it's mine and he did it for me. Jesus might not give you what you think you need. That might be the hardest part of following him. Yet what we see again and again and again is that what he gives us ultimately, and it might take the other side of death, it might take resurrection for us to see it fully. It's always better. It's always what we actually needed. Yeah, it feels like the cross so often. And I love that he didn't sell us a bill of goods. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him just bask in the miracles and the resurrection and the good life and the you know, Christian dream. No, he says, if anyone would come after me, there's going to be a cross. Because there's a cost in a world such as this one. But I'll give you life. I'll give you what you actually need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these promises. Lord, thank you for, um, for who you are. Lord, living uh, a life that sometimes feels ironic is hard. <laughs> Feeling like we have information that the world doesn't can make us feel like fools sometimes. I pray that you would remind us that you go before us, that you're the one drawing us into this life that you've called us to. God, as we come to this table, I pray that you would meet us in real ways. God, that as a result of what we've heard today, that we would hate the enemy, that we would hate life as the world wants us to live it a little bit more, not for its own sake, but so that more of our love can go towards you, more of our love and pursuit and desire can move toward where real life is found in you. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.